You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Beard. And I'm Kevin McClendon. I'm excited about this new episode, Wade. Not only is it episode 250, a momentous number, but we also are going to be talking about a new Darden Brothers movie. Yes, listeners, we're going to be reviewing their new film, Young Ahmed. You know, Kevin, I wonder what it feels like to release a movie, and every time you do that, you'll know that it's going to end up on a number of top 10 lists at the end of the year. The Jardins are probably pretty blasé about it at this point. They're just like, oh, you know, our our movie is going to be another masterpiece. Oh, so what? Who's counting at this point? We follow that review up, listeners, with our take on Katie Green's The Assistant. All that's coming up on this episode, as Kevin mentioned, episode 250 of Seeing and Believing. Essayez de faire celui Ça, il risque de vous le donner à l'examen. Essayez de faire celui A moins B fois A plus B égale A carré. Ah, c'est mon frère, je vais. Attends, attends, attends. Donc, la fin de la formule, A carré. Moins B carré. Moins B carré. OK. Ça va, tu peux y aller. Alors, Miss. Qu'est-ce qui se passe avec les divisions ici Ahmed 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 Tu peux dire au revoir, hein Tu veux toujours pas me serrer la main Au revoir. Pourquoi tu vas là-bas C'est lui qui t'a dit de plus me serrer la main. Je suis plus un enfant. Et alors Et alors, un vrai musulman ne serre pas la main d'une femme. Et tous tes copains dans la classe qui me serrent la main, c'est pas des vrais musulmans Non. Listeners, we are here, episode 250. Kevin, one-fourth of the way to a thousand. I feel like we're just getting started. Yeah, I'm feeling like we are, you know, we're feeling our oats. We are shaking off the rust. Mm. We're getting ready to make the next sprint to episode 500. So just another, what are we at? Six years now? Five Mm. years? Who's counting? Yeah. You know, I wonder if people can, I guess, measure podcast episodes the same way that we measure dog years. So it's like, okay, episode 250 you're a teenager and you kind of got some swagger, but you don't have it all figured out. Maybe when you hit 300, 350, you'll, you'll have your stuff together. That's, that's what I would assume uh, 250 represents, adolescent yeah, angst. You, you got to figure, you know, what, what you got to count backwards, I guess, from what old age would be. I personally think we're going to make it to 50,000 episodes uh, so, you know, we've, we've got a ways to go. We're still in the, the baby stages. Yeah. I mean, by the time we hit 5k robots, computer programs, algorithms will be able to analyze all of our episodes and then create episodes with our voices and know what we're going to say about a, f- a film based on what we've said about other films. It, it, they kind of just figure it all out. We don't even need to record anymore. It just kind of happens. That's coming in the future. <laughs> I look forward to the <laughs> impending reign of our robot overlords with mingled fear and fascination. Yes, uh, fear, fascination, and a lot of other emotions. Listeners, we're going to get 250 started here, and we're going to look at the assistant 
the Kitty Green-directed film in the second half of the show. But this week's episode commences with our discussion, as we mentioned, of young Ahmed, the newest film from directors Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne, set in Belgium. Young Ahmed follows a young teen, played by Adir Ben Adi, who embraces an extremist interpretation of the Quran. Ahmed eventually vows to kill his teacher, a decision that leads him down a path of alienation and maybe self-discovery. Kevin, the Dardens are some of our favorite filmmakers working today, and even though we have these high expectations of their movies, it's still pretty exciting to watch a new release come from the duo. So my opening questions, they're, they're pretty simple enough. Given our love for their work, do you think young Ahmed continues the brothers' hot streak, or do you think the film pales in comparison to some of their previous projects? Well, first of all, it's not really any shame for a film to pale in comparison to <laughs> the films that make up the rest of the Dardenne's body of work, right? Like, they've made some some excellent, excellent films, so... You know, it's it's no no criticism if a movie doesn't quite measure up to the likes of The Kid with the Bike or L'Enfant, you know? Like, there's uh, so many good films to choose from from their body of work. Uh, I do think that Young Ahmed is maybe, maybe lesser Dardenne's, if that descriptor even feels appropriate. It's a good movie. And like I often tend to say when we're talking about the Dardens, you know, they're kind of these ho-hum, another masterpiece directors where they come out with a movie and it's good. And everyone's like, well, what do you expect? If it's the Dardens, of course it's going to be good. And it, people just sort of move on with their lives, having acknowledged that, yep, they are still awesome. Um, so I think that's kind of what's happening here with Young Ahmed, where it is a, a very good film, but at least for me watching it, I, I appreciate a lot of what it was doing. I don't know that it quite reaches the heights of a kid with a bike, for instance. But that's not a criticism so much as an observation of what the Dardens are capable of when they're at the height of their powers and what they're capable of even when they're working in a, a lower gear, so to speak. So I, I like this movie quite a bit. I'm looking forward to talking about it more with you. What was your reaction to it? You know, it's a good watch and i think this is the maybe the third dardenne's film that my wife has watched priscilla's watched with me and she's like you know i'll start out kind of just casually watching and it always kind of sucks me in and i think that's true with this movie i think the movie does feel it makes me feel a little empty by the end and i'll talk through why i i think so but i I kept comparing it to some of the other Dardenne pictures that I that I do love, and as a result, it feels a little formulaic. It feels like I've seen this before, but seen it done better, and perhaps that is not so much a good criticism. As it just means I've been you know, inoculated to their their work and how great they are as filmmakers. But I I don't know 
if I got into the character of Ahmed like I've done with some of their other characters. And as a result, it didn't leave me with those just emotional highs or those experiences or those feelings that I usually do feel with some of their other pictures. And like I said, I'll go into more detail if, if possible as we talk about this, but I, I was slightly disappointed, Kevin. And as I mentioned, it's probably because this is not the first Dardenne's picture I've seen. If it would have been the first picture from them that I did have a chance to watch, maybe I would I would like it much more. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe not. I think the difference that I sensed with this film as opposed to some of the Dardenne's other films is that Ahmed, the, the protagonist, I do feel a little bit more at a remove from him as a character than I do from some of the other characters. I think of uh, the uh, Adele Haenel's, uh nurse from The Unknown Girl or Marion Cotillard in Two Days, One Night uh, or uh, the main character Cyril from The Kid with the Bike. They're all very different characters, but I feel like over the course of the film, you really do kind of... The, the Dardens just have this wonderful talent for bringing your perspective slowly into alignment with the character's perspective. So by the, by the time you reach the end of the film, you realize that you are seeing the world through their eyes almost without realizing it. And I think that's kind of what the magic of their filmmaking style is, is that they, they manage to achieve that identification without making you feel manipulated into it. And I think that's something really special, and it's a lot harder than it looks. With young Ahmed, I do feel like uh, that identification doesn't quite get all the way there. And I think it, it might be because uh, Dear Bin Adi's performance, uh, while it's good, it is a very, it's a very understated, very internal performance, such that it's, it's a little bit harder, I guess, to connect with the transformations that he undergoes over the course of the film. So at the beginning of the film, we kind of see him rushing out of his classroom in order to go to this prayer meeting with a local imam who has been uh, really inculcating him into this more fundamentalist reading of the Quran. And the movie kind of goes from there. And while Ahmed kind of does undergo a change over the course of the film, the change is not as dramatic as you might expect. And because the viewer doesn't really have a reference point for what Ahmed was like before he began going to these prayer meetings, it does feel a little bit, I guess the, the power of the changes that Ahmed undergoes feels a little bit muted simply because we don't have as, it doesn't feel like we have as many reference points, I guess, if that makes sense. It does. And the film that I that I thought about the most as I'm watching this is Lorna's Silence, the 2008 Darden Brothers picture. And out of all the pictures from them that I've seen, this one is the most pessimistic. And so I'm watching Young Ahmed, and I'm wondering what it's going to say about religious extremism and what it's going to say about the toll that it takes on Ahmed's life. And I don't know if it ever fully gets there outside of these broad brushstrokes. Like you mentioned, we don't know how he was 
I, I guess you wouldn't say converted, but how he was kind of drawn to this extremism. And we don't ever get that window into his life and into his soul as he's dealing with the repercussions of his actions. And part of that too is the performance here. You have some great performances that have anchored Darden pictures in the past. And I don't think we get that here from Adir Ben Adi. He just doesn't open up the way that he should for us to feel attached to his to his plight. Obviously, we want something to change. Obviously, we're we're looking for a moment in the picture to grab hold of. And that should come gradually and then just kind of explode onto the scene, but almost feel like it's been there the whole time. I, I don't get that sense here. And after I finished watching this movie, uh, it, it felt like it was pretty straightforward. And it, it felt like it said something about empathy. There's a, there's a line about putting yourself in someone's shoes. And you could say that that kind of does happen at the end of the movie. And it, it says something about it. Uh, but then I got to thinking, well, maybe the movie is supposed to be a little more pessimistic than we get here. Something like Lorna's Silence which is a pretty pessimistic movie, and it's ambiguous. Should this be ambiguous? And I think the Dardens were trying to add that element to the end of the, the film, and it, it just doesn't really work. And as a result, instead of this gradual payoff and then this explosion of uh, grief or grace or whatever it is, uh, we, we, don't, we don't get that. And at the end, the film feels a little incomplete and it feels a little less full, and, which is sad. And I'll say this. Like I said, I think it's a good watch, and I think there are a number of things that, that we can pull from this movie and a number of things that the Dardens do well that we probably don't even think about because they do them so well. Uh, but ultimately, I, I think that's why the film just doesn't quite make it there for me. I do kind of wonder if it might be about relationships. Uh, when I when I think of a Darden Brothers film, I think of the, the attachments between people that catalyze a change or that lead a character down a, a path that they wouldn't have chosen for themselves. You know, you think of, or, or, or simply a relationship that kind of anchors a character and and grounds them to, to their true selves. So you think, for instance, of the relationship between Marion Cotillard and her husband in Two Days, One Night, or in the relationship between Cyril and the uh, hairdresser who takes him in, in The Kid with the Bike. Um, these are, or, or even the, the sadly uh, broken relationship between Cyril and his absentee father in The Kid with the Bike. These are all relationships that act upon the central character in ways that almost feel gravitational, right? Like they're, they're drawn to another person or this other person uh, exerts an influence on them that they can feel and that affects their trajectory throughout the course of the film. In Young Ahmed, it does feel like the relationships feel a little bit um, abstracted, I guess. The the relationship between Ahmed and his mother and between him and the uh, school teacher that he uh, vows to kill for, uh, to prevent her from uh, desecrating the faith. There's a uh, flirtation between him and a farm girl. And they're all interesting enough, but I don't feel like they're sketched out with enough 
dimension for them to really feel like they anchor Ahmed as a character in the same way that maybe other Darden relationships do. And that's not necessarily a weakness with the film. I don't think that's a flaw, but it does maybe explain why this character, this protagonist, Ahmed, is maybe a little bit more difficult for the audience to read because there's not really as much of a reference point that we have for him in the form of other characters. Yeah, I, I think the flirtatious relationship with the farm girl, rather than feeling natural, like many of the relationships you, you just talked about, it feels very forced. It feels like a plot point, and as a result, doesn't provide the emotional backing that it needs. I think there are some really great scenes in this picture. And I think that's why I, I had such high expectations toward the end, trying to hope it comes together. Uh, and then realizing that, well, maybe it didn't come together because of the steps that were laid to that conclusion. I'm thinking of one scene where Ahmed and his teacher begin to quote these passages from the Quran to each other. And the teacher is speaking of peace. And and when the Quran speaks of of loving other people. And then Ahmad is is really kind of talking about some of the more violent passages in the Quran. Well, well who's right? Who has the right interpretation? That's a that's a great scene. And I would have liked to watch that scene play out through their relationship. And we get a fuller sense of where these characters are coming from and their interpretations by the way that they interact with one another. And we just don't get to see that. Uh, I also appreciate the scenes where Ahmed prays. We get to watch him pray for a long period of time to him stop and him think and him kind of create a ritual for himself. Well, the, the ritual is already created, but him observing those uh, rituals where he is taking time to pray. What does that do to him? How does that reinforce his, uh, his devotion to this particular interpretation of Islam? I, I, I want to see that. I want to dig into that. Uh, instead, we, we just don't get it. And it's kind of strange that they, they chose to go after this type of topic. And I know that some people, because they have dealt here with, with this extremism, uh, have kind of dismissed the film outright. I think it's an ambitious topic. I think it's something worth considering, especially if you think about the Dardens and their body of work and their gravitational pull towards grace and love and mercy to see almost the opposite side of that, uh, the collision just didn't quite happen the way that it should. But that doesn't dismiss some of the really, I think, well-done scenes in the movie. I do think that the Dardens are very spiritually sensitive directors. Not that their their films often deal explicitly with, with spiritual matters or that the characters, that spirituality is particularly important to them. But I do feel like... Watching a Darden movie, you get a sense that it's, you know, people aren't all there is, right? Like there's there's something, there's a spiritual reality going on between these characters, even if they can't articulate it to themselves or or notice it happening, it's still there. In this film, I do appreciate how that kind of sensibility comes out in the scenes we get with 
Ahmed praying. So the Dardens shoot him um, in sort of their signature medium close-up where it's not a it's not all the way up in in Ahmed's face and it's not shot from a distance in kind of uh, a more objective way where we're kind of seeing the entire scene almost as a tableau. We get the camera sort of following Ahmed as he as he stands straight, then as he bows, then as he kneels. The camera stays with him as he does that rather than taking a more distanced view and viewing that all in just kind of a single static shot. Similarly, there's a a shot where he's he's in his room and he has an open Quran on his bed and he's praying, but the Dardenne's, the angle that they choose, frame it so that his open hands, as he prays, are kind of aligned with that open Quran on the bed. And that really does so much to bring the viewer into how personal, uh, or at least how fervent Ahmed's uh, beliefs are about how he really does just long so much to have this, this strong anchor for his life that that can kind of take him through his days and give him a sense of purpose in uh, this land that he doesn't really feel like is fully his own. That's I, I really appreciate that. I think maybe that the film doesn't quite do enough to bring the viewer into that experience fully so that we completely understand why this particular brand of religion is what Ahmed is drawn to, why he's drawn to extremism as opposed to simply fervent uh, uh, Islamic faith or uh, any other faith for that matter. Uh, why why this particular brand? And that's a question that I don't think that the Dardens fully answer, and I don't know that they fully intended to answer it. That does kind of lead to a situation where you do view him compassionately, as you do with most Darden characters, but you never really fully get inside why why he feels so strongly about this, other than he just generally doesn't can't can't even quite articulate to himself why he desires it. But he there's something in him that just deeply desires this kind of uh, belonging and sense of purpose. That's interesting. I don't know that the Dardens fully pull off the the trick of bringing us into it. And I wonder if that might be because this is a religious tradition that is a little bit more unfamiliar to them. And so they don't maybe have the foundation or the intimate familiarity with it that would allow them to kind of take that next step. I think they they allude to it briefly in that Ahmed's father is not around. And if you connect the dots, you can almost see, okay, he feels like he's kind of lost and he gravitates towards something that is, I don't know if you'd say firm, but that seems to possess all the answers. There are clean cut lines. This branch tells you exactly what to do at every moment and gives you a very specific and tangible goal for the future. Whereas the faith of his teacher provides some open room. And so he possibly moves towards this interpretation because he needs some sort of guidance. And, and that's just me kind of putting putting the dots together, as I, as I said. I don't know if the film really kind of takes any steps towards connecting those dots other than a brief reference 
in the film. And I, I think that could have been a powerful point because then what happens is it starts to open up ideas about how people of all sorts are drawn to extremism, whether that's conspiracy theories, whether that's a, a legalistic Christian faith, whether that's a militant uh, atheism, whatever it is, uh, this idea of, of something immediately giving you a complete handle and control over overall uh, could be appealing to some. And uh, that w- that's what was missing, and, and perhaps the universal qualities to this film and to this struggle. Uh, right now, the faith aspect seems to function a bit on the backdrop. It, it, it's more about plot than actually exploration, and I would have liked to see some more uh, exploration. Yeah, the the issue with, with Ahmed's uh, father not being around does feel to me almost a little bit wrote right like you think of the the plot of the kid with the bike and a lot of ways it's very similar it's a a boy who uh, whose father is is not there for him who is kind of in search of belonging and the viewer kind of gets a sense that it's because he he wants something he can't get from his father and so he's trying to find it in uh lots of different places and uh he's uh feels uh upset or angry and can't quite identify to himself why that is and in the kid with the bike it feels like there's a specificity to cyril's struggle that makes that feel like less of a a, (laughs) sort of an easy psychological explanation more like something that like a real person might uh have that feeling too with young ahmed it does it feels like Okay, yeah, that's a plausible explanation, but it doesn't. We don't really feel it in the same way we do in maybe some of the Dardenne's masterworks, because uh, either because again, because the the lead performance is a little bit more interior, and so we don't really get as much of Ahmed as we maybe need in order to feel that, or maybe just because the way it's written by the Dardenne's feels a little bit. Not, I don't want to say it's, it feels like it's on, on autopilot because that's unfairly dismissive and I don't think that's actually true, but it does feel like there's this, it feels a little bit too tidy maybe. And, and that's perhaps why uh, it, it's not as satisfying is that this is a topic, you know, Islamic extremism is such a de- delicate topic and there's a lot of complexity here in terms of immigration and identity and you know, all these sorts of things swirling around that could go into this picture. And the fact that we're not really getting a whole lot of that feels a little bit um, incomplete. Listeners, that is our review of Young Ahmed, the new film from the Dardenne Brothers. We'd love to hear your thoughts. It's currently available to rent on VOD, so make sure you check it out and let us know what you think. You can tweet us at cbeliefpod at cbeliefpod. You can also email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to talk about The Assistant, the new film from Kitty Crean, here in just a moment.
That song is Another Land by Pierre Rogensberger. You know, listeners, we want to take an opportunity and just say thanks for all of you who support us via our Patreon campaign. You help the show keep going, and we are just so thankful for that. Listeners, you can support us via our Patreon campaign. We've got a number of different donation levels, and one of our favorites, we talk about it sometimes on the show, is the what can you buy for $5 level. You get some great perks. Plus, Kevin, you get to find out what someone could buy for five bucks. What could someone buy for five dollars? Well, you know, I'm a I'm a big fan of Mike Birbiglia's comedy. I like him a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And in uh, I think the the first routine that really made him big, Sleepwalk with Me, he talked about having a dream uh, in which he had a neck pillow that was also made of pizza. And five dollars for something like that seems like it would be amazing. <laughs> I remember that bit. That's it's a very funny bit. Not as good as his. I don't know if you've heard this one. The Joey Bag of Donuts. Joey Bag of Donuts <laughs> bit, which is wonderful. But I too would love a neck pillow made out of pizza. It's great for sleeping. It's great for eating. It's great for eating and sleeping, which is some of the. Two, two of the favorite things that I love in this world, <laughs> uh, eating and sleeping. You can get that for $5, listeners. You can also support us. Go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcasts. And uh, yeah, we very much appreciate everything that you do for the podcast. And uh, we want to do our best to provide some great content and hopefully help you out as you watch uh, more movies. We do have to offer a little bit, or at least maybe I need to offer a little bit of a mea culpa here, Wade. Uh, so l- listeners may remember from last week's episode that we mentioned that there was going to be a, a survey, a listener survey uh, asking you about your experience with the the recent episodes, how we've been experimenting with the format somewhat. And uh, we recorded that episode, Wade, and then I was going to go and actually create that survey and I totally dropped the ball and did <laughs> oh, no. not actually send out that survey. So I'm sorry, listeners, if you were kind of waiting uh, for that to to have a link dropped on our on our Twitter, or on our Patreon, or anything like that, waiting with bated breath so you could finally tell us just exactly what you think of us. Um, I did not give you the chance to do that because, like I said, I dropped the ball. So definitely keep an eye out for that survey this week. I'll I promise to get it out soon, but I just had to say something, Wade, just in case people were kind of checking their feeds and wondering what the heck was going on. (laughs) Well, I did not remind you uh, to do that, so it's my fault as well. Uh, Well, thank you for taking some of the blame. It does make me feel better. (laughs) Listeners, as always, you can also rate and review us on iTunes. We very much appreciate that. Our feed is also available on Spotify and Stitcher. So wherever you get your podcast, make sure to subscribe there. And like I mentioned, give us a quick review. Every little bit helps. What's your plan? Sorry? Where do you want to be in five to ten years? Oh, uh, I... I want to produce. I want to be a producer. You do? Yeah. That's, okay. That's excellent. We could use more women producers. You know, that's a, it's a tough job, but I can see that you've got what it takes. Thanks. Well, welcome back to the second half of our show. And Wade, we are going to be talking about Kitty Green's The Assistant 
in this segment. And, you know, I, I don't know as much about Kitty Green. This is the first film of hers that I've seen. So I don't know if perhaps she feels a little bit of relief that she doesn't have the same kind of pressure that the Dardens do, where she has to reach masterpiece status, or else everybody spends the, the entire review just talking about how it's not <laughs> as good as her other films. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit less pressure uh, than the Dardens, but I, I'm so, I think I saw one of her documentaries not too long ago but I'm, I'm really excited we had a chance to catch up with this one it's been talked about kind of just so much it's it's very timely uh, but it, there there really is something to this movie so i'm i'm happy to jump in and re- really just discuss this yeah it's interesting that you say that this was timely i think it got its uh its main release back in february or so and february feels like years ago at this point (laughs) so it it does feel odd in some ways to talk about it being timely in that sense but now that it has become available for on-demand streaming uh we're really looking forward to talking about it and seeing just how well it holds up in this brave new world that we're living in today uh this is a film of course directed as we mentioned by kitty green and it stars julia garner who may be most recognizable to listeners for her work in television on series such as The Americans and Ozark. In this film, Julia Garner stars as Jane, a personal assistant whom we first see taking an Uber to work so early in the morning that most people haven't even woken up yet. Over the course of the film, we watch Jane go through her day cleaning up the messes of her co-workers, getting yelled at by her superiors, and slowly coming to the realization that her boss is definitely involved in some shady, shall we say, criminal activities. So, Wade, I'm looking forward to getting your opinion on this picture because Kitty Green, in giving this us this story in the form of sort of a, a day in the life, we begin in the morning and we end in the evening with this picture, and in between there's a lot that Kitty Green does to build a certain atmosphere. My question for you is, did this atmosphere work for you? And did Kitty Green's approach to telling the story as a whole work for you? Yeah, I, I think that this is a very focused picture. It's a day in the life of this assistant, and you don't actually even get to see the boss the entire time. And there's this alienation here, because you watch as this character is bombarded with all of these menial tasks and is constantly busy and is she's making stuff happen they need her she's important at the same time uh she's not privy to all of the big decisions that are happening Uh, she is stuck in the details and almost powerless to get out and that's a great metaphor for where she is in this particular role. She seems to be just a a pawn that's being used like the other women around this boss are being used. And the film, uh, it's not really out to wow you. I wouldn't say it wowed me, uh, but I think it's a, a great slice of this type of life and this type of job. And I think for that, it, it's very effective in what it sets out to do. 
I think this is an extremely effective movie, and it it's probably I'll, I'll say it now. This is probably one of the best new releases I've seen this year so far. Okay, um, I I liked it quite a bit, and I think that a lot of that comes down to what you said at the beginning of your review, which is just how focused this picture is. Everything is sort of working together to create a very particular mood, a very particular impression that uh, brings us into uh, James' perspective every bit as effectively as, say, the Dardens uh, align us with their characters' perspectives. The the way that Kitty Green marshals the the framing of Jane in these office environments where she's sort of either uh, kind of dead center with uh, these these shelves and this office uh, furniture kind of looming above her, or the way that she is standing uh, in in a way that's uh, very very tense in the office elevators. Or the way that the the sound in this film really does a lot to emphasize how she can only catch snatches of conversation, or she can only just half hear somebody yelling behind a closed door, and that uh, in turn brings the audience kind of into the same headspace where we're not quite sure what we're hearing, but we know something bad is going down, and that's kind of I think the mastery of of Kitty Green's directing is she knows how to not only create this kind of mood to show us what's literally happening, like what her character's experiences are, but also to kind of make the audience sit forward and and think to ourselves, am I am I hearing this correctly? What exactly is happening? And that uncertainty is the same sort of uncertainty that Jane feels throughout most of this picture. And I think that's what makes it so effective. And I, I love the way the camera reinforces all of this. Uh, we get to see shots from above this character. There is a great deal of headspace in a number of images. There's just this weight that sits on her as she goes throughout her day. And we feel what she feels. Notice how the the lighting is very moody it's very colorless this is what it's like aesthetically to work in this environment and you can see just by just by feeling these images how her surroundings must affect her psyche and how just the the fluorescent lighting as it just dips into her skin must change the way that she looks at others and change the way she probably even looks at herself. And then I think it also communicates just the the powerlessness of this character of being in this world, not just being low on the totem pole, but being a young woman with little experience low in the totem pole and we get to see some of the people that she works around and even they have a little more power power than her despite uh all she does for this company and that is extremely um effective and uh there are some moments that might be a little forced uh one image she gets this this paper cut and, and another um 
couple of conversations, but but I think overall we just get to just sit in this space and watch. And when we watch, that's really, you know, that's all we need to do. That's all we need to see. And we we figure everything out by really not even figuring all the details out, if that makes sense. This film is so good at capturing a particular kind of brutality that is specific to high-pressure office environments where you know most of the time they're you know you're not getting yelled at you know somebody's not screaming at you uh there's there's not like this very loud atmosphere and yet there are ways in which people can act upon you in this sort of environment and who do act upon jane in this film where there's just this the sublimated threat where if if she doesn't go along or if she just doesn't sort of swallow her feelings and accept abuse from the people who have power over her then bad things will happen and then they never really say what those bad things are there's a, a just a, a utterly utterly harrowing scene between her and an hr rep played by uh matthew mcfadden who is a long way from his role as mr darcy in the kira knightley version of <laughs> pride and prejudice um but he plays an hr rep uh who she goes to uh with some concerns that she has about what her boss has been up to and over the course of this scene, he's he's sitting there, and McFadden plays it with just this very, um, just this blandness that becomes more and more sinister as the scene progresses. Where he 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 stares at her, kind of poised, wanting her to come out and say what her suspicions are, but also playing dumb so that she can't quite come out and say it. He doesn't give her any help at all. And that, as the scene goes on, becomes more and more horrifying because he's sort of the one person who should be helping her out and be willing to hear out her complaint. And yet he just, he prefers to sort of play dumb, be deliberately obtuse, and in the end, make veiled threats in order to get her to stay quiet. And I just think that the writing in that scene and the the performances in that scene are so masterful that it, it I, I don't know that I've I've seen anything quite like it in in another film uh, that's set in this setting. Yeah, her visit to the uh, to the HR office is I, I think probably the highlight of the movie, and it it kind of I think it's an, a good illustration of what this film does best is it does a really good job of talking about the issue through conversations without actually talking about the issue. And that's what we get in this movie. We have characters who are alluding to certain situations and discussing them in a code. And and that code is there to protect people in power and even to protect people's jobs, right? So they all know what's going on, but they are not going to say a word about it. They're going to talk around it uh, so that they're quote unquote not complicit. And I think that that is another big question that the film highlights is uh, what does it mean to be a part of the problem and how is it easy to get sucked into a situation like this and not find a way out or to not immediately walk out? There is this power that's hanging over uh, Julia garner's head and she is 
conflicted and she doesn't even know how to communicate that even even to her parents and i think julia garner's performance here is wonderful and perhaps even one of the best of of the year you talked about this being one of your favorite films of the year and i think this is um I think this is one of the best performances. She just does a fantastic job. I, I've seen a little bit of The Americans. I, I have not seen Ozark, um, but uh, she's she's really great here. It is a performance that could have been over the top, uh, but it it gets the job done in a really wonderful way. She finds she finds this low key approach that's just it's utterly effective. Probably my favorite shot in the entire film is when she gets a, a phone call from the executive that she's an assistant to. And the, uh, Kitty Green's camera, it's this really tight close-up, and basically uh, Julia Garner just holds the phone to her ear with one hand, and the other hand basically holds the other side of her head. So she's essentially like holding her head in her hands while her boss berates her over the phone. And we don't it's really hard to make out exactly what he's saying to her, but the sound is edited in such a way that we know he's being verbally abusive. And the camera just stays on in that same close-up for the entirety of the conversation, and we just see these really subtle shifts in Garner's face where you you know that she's just barely holding back tears, and she just doesn't quite know what to do, whether she should stand up for herself, whether she should just accept it, and just that utter powerlessness and that paralyzing sense that somehow she deserves to be yelled at, but not really, and that conflict just comes through on her face, but in a way that's so subtle and just masterfully performed by Garner. It's just a, a wonderful shot and a wonderful wonderful performance. Yeah, and it, it, it's just kind of funny the way that it captures... Uh, workplace environments and uh i i i love my job i've had jobs in the past however uh, where you get chewed out by people and there's this strange feeling when you get chewed out and you didn't you didn't you aren't to blame right and so you're getting chewed out and then other people are watching it and this kind of wild reaction where or even when you're watching somebody else it, you, you you're embarrassed because they're taking the blame but you're also watching to see what happens and it's just a weird dynamic and we get that in a couple of scenes here it just kind of captures the what it's like to be in a toxic work environment and i'm I'm with you kevin that scene her performance is is really just wonderful and we also have uh, some pretty great tracking shots uh, throughout this movie as, as people kind of moving in and out of the office. So there is there is a little bit of room to maneuver, but it's also pretty constricting too, uh, which is a great element for a movie like this. It's, it's interesting that this film does feel so claustrophobic. And a lot of the times, you know, a, a director will create that effect by kind of maintaining the same kinds of shots, like staying in, in close-ups or medium close-ups for the entire film, or staying in a single location for the entire film, or doing tricks with focus so you, you're constantly focused on what's in the foreground and not in the background. These are all things that we often see that create this claustrophobic feel. Uh, Kitty Green doesn't really stick to just a, a one 
one trick to create that impression. It's more just the the angles that she she shoots at, the the set design that really emphasizes how uh, Julia Garner's character doesn't really have her own space and doesn't even really have any time to herself. There's a scene where, you know, she's been at the office at this point for, you know, three or four hours just sort of cleaning up stuff, scrubbing down a very suspicious couch, uh, turning on everybody's computers for them. And then she finally has a few moments and she's like eating some cereal at the kitchen sink in the break room. And some people kind of squeeze past her into the doorway and she realizes that she can't finish even her bowl of Fruit Loops. And that just, uh, stuff like that really just does so much to emphasize how she is trapped in a way. She's trapped not only physically, but also in the sense that she's lucky to have this opportunity and it would be a mistake for her to throw it all away over the uh, the dalliances of her boss or the way that she's abused. And that I think is what eventually makes this film kind of deeply sad is that she does feel pressure to subject herself to this day in and day out because it's a quote unquote great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the manipulation that is there is it's really just wild. Listeners, that is our review of The Assistant. And like Young Ahmed, it is also available to rent or purchase on VOD. Let us know what you think. As always, tweet us at cbeliefpod at cbeliefpod or email us seeing and believing capc at gmail.com we have reached the end of our episode it's at this point that we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners kevin what would you like to recommend to our listeners this week Uh, my recommendation for this week is one that i've actually i've recommended before but given what's going on in in the country right now it just seemed like one that I I should re-up. <laughs> um, I'm going to recommend Charles Burnett's 1978 film Killer of Sheep. This is uh, an indie film that Burnett made as, uh, I think it was his final thesis project for, for film school. So essentially he was not an established director when he made this, but this is essentially a look at working class black life uh, during the 1970s. And of course, there's a lot of really wonderful uh, slice of life stuff that Burnett brings into this that gives us, a, uh, especially viewers who may not be familiar with that experience, that provides such a, a great snapshot of uh, a certain kind of lived experience. Uh, it's got a lot to say about race in America. There's this kind of uh, galvanizing sequence where Burnett juxtaposes uh, slaughterhouse footage with this really corny sort of what America means to me song on the soundtrack that's really memorable. And yet he also has these really elevating shots of, of children jumping from rooftop to rooftop and sort of being silhouetted against uh, a cloudless sky that is also really remarkable. Um, I don't know. I just, I think it's a a really excellent film. It's one that I do feel like is not as uh, widely viewed as it should be. Um, But fortunately, some film preservationists have found a way to offer it 
uh, streaming for free. So maybe we'll put that in our show notes so that if listeners want a chance to track this down but don't necessarily have access to it on physical media, they can stream it for free off of off of the internet. And it is definitely worth their time. I have not seen that film yet, uh, but it's definitely one I, I need to check out. That's a very good pick, especially, as you mentioned, for this week. Kevin, I was thinking about Young Ahmed, and it reminded me of a documentary short film that released last year on Netflix, and it is called Ghosts of Sugar Land. It's from director, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Bassam Tariq. It tells the story of a young man from Sugar Land, Texas, just outside of Houston, who, like Ahmed and Young Ahmed, he begins to gravitate towards a radical, violent interpretation of the Quran, and he eventually leaves uh, to go join a terrorist organization. And the story is told uh, by people who knew him, a group of suburban Muslims. And what's fascinating about this story is these characters wear masks as they are talking about their former friend. And they are superhero masks and Star Wars masks. And there's this kind of fascinating element to what they're doing. Uh, They feel like they're caught between two worlds, uh, their heritage and this life that they now live in a suburban area. And so they're speaking behind these masks as they are talking about the masks that sometimes they have to wear and the way that people uh, treat them where they are from and how this relates to their friend and what their friend went on to do. And I, I wouldn't say that this documentary is something that is going to blow you away, but it's definitely a great perspective to see where these individuals are coming from. So it's a short film, 21 minutes long, and you can catch it on Netflix, Ghosts of Sugarland. It released in 2019. Oh, I haven't had a chance to, to see that, but that sounds interesting. I'll have to track that down, especially if it's on, on Netflix. Like, what excuse do I have if it's, <laughs> if it's just sitting on there waiting to be watched? Yeah, yeah. I, I did not know it existed until it showed up on a couple of uh, articles last year, I think towards the end of the year. It's just kind of fascinating what that film uh, does, and uh, it's definitely interesting to talk about. Listeners. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Make sure to rate and review us on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you listen to the show. This episode, like always, is brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.